Freedom is a precious word and a precious commodity. In fact, the Marines of this nation and other soldiers are in great numbers in Beirut, Lebanon tonight, and down on the island of Grenada in the interest of freedom. There is a book in the New Testament that has as its theme freedom or liberty in Christ. As you very well know, that is the book of Galatians. In the first two chapters, we have what is called the personal section of the book. It is therein the thrust deals with the apostle of liberty. And therein Paul primarily establishes the fact that he is on an equal par with other unquestioned, inspired apostles of our Lord. The second section of the book deals with chapters 3 and 4, and what is commonly called for study purposes the doctrinal section. And therein the great doctrine of Christian liberty is presented. And therein, in these two chapters, Paul develops the fact that justification, or liberty in Christ, is dependent upon faith, upon an obedient, responsive faith, and not upon the works of the old law, or upon any meritorious system. Then in the first section, in chapters 4, or rather chapters 5 and 6, we have what is called the exhortatory section of the book, dealing with the life that we are to live, the life of liberty, we are to live in Christ. And it is in that latter section we have the text for the evening study. It is therein that the Apostle Paul said, For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap correction. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The lesson tonight that has been assigned the divine principle of sowing and reaping. I would like to begin, first of all, by observing tonight that the Bible teaches that reaping is the inevitable consequences of sowing. In fact, that's the reading of the text. The text does not say, if you sow, you might reap, you ought to reap, you should reap, but the text says, we shall reap. In the book of Numbers, chapter 32, and in verse 23, it was Moses that said to the tribes of uh, Reuben and uh, Gad, and be sure your sins will find you out. Now, these two tribes had expressed a desire to inherit their part of the land on the eastern side of Jordan. Well, Moses became quite disturbed. He said, What mean ye to make the hearts of your brethren go grow weak? And they said, Oh, no, Moses, we intend to cross over Jordan to fight the battles with them, and when the land has been secured, then we will return back over Jordan, back to our families, and there to care for our flocks. But we're herdsmen, this is good grassland, and so give us our section over here on the eastern side of Jordan. Well, whenever Moses heard that, he then said, Well, all right. But he said, if you do otherwise, then that that you have just said. He said, make very sure that you understand that your sins will find you out. That simply means that you're going to have to reap the consequences attached to that type of behavior. Then throughout the Bible, 
there is a repetitive emphasis on this fact, and that is that reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. For example, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, and in verse 8, we're told, He that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity. Then again, in that same book, in chapter 30, and in verse 22, Solomon says, Surely the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose, it bringeth forth blood. So the forcing of wrath bringeth forth destruction. And then again in the book of Psalms 137 and in verse 8 we read, O daughter of Babylon, who art thou, he says, that shall be destroyed. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee, that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. And then again in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 18 the majestic prophet said, According to their deeds, according he will repay, surely to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay, recompense. Then again in that well-known text in the book of Hosea chapter 8 and in verse 7, the prophet of God said, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now these are only a sampling of various verses that establish the fact that it is an industrial and a scriptural thrust, and that is that reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. Ahab is a graphic illustration of that principle in operation. You will recall that he had Naboth unjustly slain. And then that fearless prophet of God, Elijah, said to him in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21 and in verse 19, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood even thine. And then later, that same prophet of God said to Jezebel, who had wickedly devised the scheme by which Naboth was to be slain, he said to her, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And all Old Testament students know that these particular predictions, they were fulfilled, and that too, the minuteness of their utterance. We're simply saying that Ahab sowed to the wind, and Ahab, he did reap the whirlwind. Yet in spite of these scriptural observations and scriptural illustrations, there are those today who seemingly doubt, if not outrightly disbelieve, this scriptural thrust that reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. For example, there are parents today who seemingly are oblivious to this fact, thinking that they can live lives of depravity in the presence of their children and not see the serious consequences that will result therefrom. And this same type of concept is also seen at times among teenagers. For example, there are those among this age group that think that they're exempt from the law of, well, if I sow one of these days, I sure when I have to reap. But ask the young lady that had to give up her college scholarship because she became with child in her senior years. Ask the young man who got drunk for the first time on graduation night and then was responsible for the slaying of three among whom was his girlfriend because he lost control of his car. 
irrespective of our stage, whether we are among the older group or among the younger group, God's law, God's inevitable law is that reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. It is a divine principle. But what is it that causes sometimes, that causes us sometimes to doubt, if not to outrightly disbelieve this particular scriptural point? I believe that there are at least two contributing factors to that doubt and disbelief. In the first place, sometimes there are those who have a wrong concept of God. I just wish I could have heard Brother McCord discuss the justice and the mercy of God the last couple of nights. And I am very sure that the balance of the two was so beautifully and accurately drawn. But there are those who do not thus see God as he is fixed in the Bible. But as is sometimes frequently expressed, there are those who conceive of God as simply a namby-pamby type of an individual, or as a glorified Santa Claus, or as an overindulgent grandfather, rather than being the exacting but loving father that the Bible does picture. In the book of Exodus, you will recall, whenever God gave the Decalogue, he introduced the same by saying, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers. There's justice. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation, and showing mercy. There's the counterbalance. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So many times then, when we misconceive of God, it is then that we began to doubt that even though we sow, that somehow or another we're not going to have to reap the consequences of our behavior. And that being true, Elihu, though such was not the case, charged Job for thinking that God did not regard sin very seriously. And thus, according to Moffat's rendering of Job chapter 35 and verse 15, he said, He, that is Job, is not serious about sin. And if we're not careful, that same type of concept will fill our hearts today. And then secondly, there are some who doubt and who otherwise disbelieve the divine principle of sowing and reaping because there is a time lapse between the infraction of divine law and then the operation of the retributive justice of God. That being true, Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11 reads, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What about the tragic picture we have in the book of Judges? Unquestionably, the root of that goes back into the mistakes during the days of Joshua. How about our Lord speaking in about A.D. 30 to 33, the woes coming upon Jerusalem in the book of Matthew 24, and yet such not being fulfilled until about A.D. 70. No doubt you know the story of the 11 men who stole $2 million back some years ago in the state of Massachusetts. Six years was the statute of limitations. And one year passed, and they had not been apprehended. Two years, three years, and even five years. Five years, eleven months, 
and twenty-six days passed. Then they were apprehended, and appropriate sentencing was forthcoming. What's my point? Even though there may be a lapse between the infraction and the reaping, rest assured, we shall reap. Reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. Now, my friends, to think otherwise is to mock God. That's why our text begins by saying, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows that, shall he also reap. It's interesting to observe that the word mock in that text is from a word that means to turn up the nose. In other words, it signifies a gesture of contempt. And such is the posture, and such is the attitude of anyone who doubts or disbelieves the divine principle is of if I sow, I shall also reap. It is as if one were saying what rebellious Judas said in the long ago. And thus Isaiah chapter 5, 18 and 19 reads, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with the cords of vanity, and sin as it were with a courtroom. That say, let him make speed, and hasten his work that we may sit, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Yes, if we reap, if we sow, we shall also reap. Now, at this juncture, I believe it to be appropriate to observe that we must not mistake the fact that there is forgiveness for sowing on the wrong side of the ledger. But even though there is forgiveness for sowing on the wrong side of the ledger, said forgiveness does not necessarily dispense of reaping. Forgiveness, for example, will remove the guilt of the infraction. And for that God will never remember our sins and our iniquities again. Again, even though we are sown on the wrong side of the ledger, we can be forgiven, and that will bring us again into the fellowship with God. And having been forgiven, we will be strengthened, and we'll be in a better position to commiserate with others who stumble and fall. But in spite of all of that, that does not, that does not, dispense of the reaping attached to the infraction of law. The wound may heal, my friends, but the scar is there. And the nail may be extracted from the door, but the hole remains in the structure. And therefore sin was never sinned in vain. The reddening scars remain and make confession. Lost innocence returns no more. We are not what we were before transgression. Wasn't Moses forgiven? Who appeared with our Lord on the Transfiguration's mouth? Matthew chapter 17. And yet, though forgiven, he still suffered the consequences of the infraction of God's will, and therefore he never entered into the promised land, Deuteronomy chapter 34. What about David? Nathan said to him, Thou art forgiven in 2 Samuel chapter 12, but in spite of that, there was murder and there was adultery, that, of course, remained in his family. In what manner today? 
a man can be guilty of immorality. And if he penitently and contrastly returns unto God, God by his mercy and through the cleansing efficacy of the blood of his son will forgive him a set infraction. But just because God has forgiven thee fulfilled that doesn't mean that venereal disease automatically ceases to indwell his body. And just because God will forgive the penitent pervert, that doesn't mean that he no longer will have the dreaded now disease called AIDS. And just because God will forgive the man who defiles his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, with nicotine, yea, when he turns to God and says, forgive, yea, God will forgive. But that doesn't mean that emphysema automatically leaves. And when the alcoholic turns to God, God will forgive his dependent. But that doesn't mean that no longer does he have sorosis of the liver. And therefore, Butterworth was right when he said, I walked through the woodland meadows, where the sweet thrushes sing, and I found on a bed of mosses a bird with a broken wing. I healed its wound, and each morning it sang its old sweet strain. But the bird with a broken pinion never soared as high again. I found a young life broken by sin's seductive art and touched with Christ-like pity. I took him to my heart. He lived with a noble purpose and struggled not in vain, but the life that sin has stricken never soared as high again. But the bird with a broken pinion kept another from the snare, and the life that sin had stricken raised another from despair. Each law had its compensation. There is healing for every pain. But the bird with her broken pinion never soared. As I again. Point one. If you sow, you're going to reap. That's a divine principle. I'd like to see in the next place tonight that we will reap as we have sown. In fact, in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and in verses 11 and 12, Christ in that text it was the Lord that said that seed will produce after its kind. Hosea 10 and 13 reads, Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity. Colossians 3.15 reads, For he that doeth wrong shall receive again for the wrong. And it's interesting to observe that the marginal rendering of that text says, Shall receive again or again the wrong that he has done, and there is no respect of persons. Indeed, many times, justice, retributive justice or punishment takes the very form of the offense or the infraction. Joseph, or rather Jacob, deceived Esau, Genesis 27, and his own sons deceived him, Genesis 37, concerning the whereabouts of his beloved Joseph. What about David? You would have called that David defiled another man's home and lived to see his own home defiled. He defiled himself with sensuality and animalism, and he lived to see his own daughter defiled by Amnon. He was a traitor to a faithful soldier, Uriah by name, and he lived to see his own army become a traitor to him. Yes, he sowed to the wind, and in that, from that standpoint, he reached the whirlwind. How about Saul the Christ? He was the persistent persecutor. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. But oh, how he was persecuted 
Second Corinthians chapter 11. What about Adonabesek? Out of the book of Judges chapter 1 and in verses 6 through 8. How did he cut off the thumbs and the Lord told a heavenly king. And then when the people of God apprehended him, yea, they took Adonabesek, king of Bezek, and what did they do? They severed his thumbs and they severed his toes. We reap as we have sown. That being true, how frequently do we see that divorced parents often have divorced children. And parents who are unfaithful to the church oftentimes have what? Children who become unfaithful to the church. And so as the maxim would emphasize, if you do not want the fruits of sin, then stay out of the orchard. What's my point? Reaping is the inevitable consequence of sowing. And secondly, we reap as we have sown. But then thirdly, in the development of that divine principle of sowing and reaping, we see that the Bible teaches us that we will reap far more than we ever sow. Such was affirmed by our Lord in the book of Hosea, chapter 8 and verse 7. Recall again, for they that have sown the wind shall reap what? They shall reap the whirlwind. A farmer can plant one grain of corn in the soil. From that will come the plant, upon which there will be several ears of corn, and combined thereupon there will be several hundred, hundred pieces of seed corn. What's my point? He has reaped far more than he has sown. Now that is so graphically seen in various areas. For example, such can be seen in sin's consequences as relates to the body. A few moments of immorality can result in a lifetime of disease and change. It's even seen in sin's consequences as relates to the mind and as relates to the conscience. It takes but a few moments to commit a given sin. And yet that can result in a lifetime of disturbing memories and disturbing thoughts. Therefore, the majestic prophet was right when he said, in the book of Isaiah 57 and 21, there is no peace to the wicked. It has been 20 years since they had sold Joseph into slavery, and yet you would recall in the book of Genesis 42 and 21, they still had a vivid memory of that, and thus they responded and said, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. What about the book of Micah, chapter 6 and verse 16? Therein we read about Amri and Ahab. Well, whenever Micah prophesied, Amri had been dead about 200 years. Ahab had been dead about 170 years. And yet their ungodly influence was still very much alive and resulting in the people of God in Micah's day. They're coming at desolation and they're hitting. What's my point here? that we can see the principle we're presently emphasizing in sin's consequences as not only relates to one's body, as it relates to one's mind and conscience, but as it relates also to one's influence. Yes, still influencing 170 years, 200 years after their very life. Then it can also be seen in sin's consequences as it relates to one's prosperity. We'll say more about that a little bit later. But in right coming over today, I picked up an Atlanta Constitution, the newspaper published in Atlanta. 
My heart bled. As I thought of a child then that had no home to which to go. And I thought, that's pitiful. That's tragic. And I read the accompanying story. And he was three years old. Someone says, where are our foster homes? Listen to the story. The mother of that little three-year-old child was from the island of Haiti. A Haiti. And a child with AIDS. The father had deserted the child. And they had sought 20 foster homes to take this child into their home and give it care. They said, no. Why? Because this little three-year-old baby was one of 100 children they have now ascertained that has the disease of AIDS. And it's just and Delaire said the article, if possible, to the limit of only three more years. That is utterly tragic. What's my point? The point is that we can see that we reap far more than we ever sow. See it in people's bodies, in their minds and consciences, in their posterity, as well as in their influence. But then add to that the next observation. That are relative to the divine principle of sowing and reaping, the Bible teaches that others are going to reap what we sow. Listen to Lamentations 5 and 7. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Not the guilt of them, but share the consequences of the same. Isn't that what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, when he writes, For as an Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so every gray hair that has appeared like silver threads among the gold, and every wrinkle that has parted your brow, and every tear that has subdued your cheek or dimmed your eyes, and every, every disappointment that has broken your heart, and every person that has bowed your back, and every responsibility that has caused your knees to buckle, and every transgression that has assailed you, and every tribulation that has laid you low, has come about because right there in the very beginning, Adam and Eve did not say no. That's my point. Others are still reaping today, even the sin of the first pair in the paradise of God. How it can also be seen in the lives of other biblical characters. What about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Twenty times it is said, he, a king of Judah, or of Israel, did not depart from the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. In fact, the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, cast its dark shadow over the reign of fifteen kings of Israel. And according to first Kings chapter 14, 15, and 16, was one of the prime reasons of Israel going into captivity. What about David in his lifetime? Listen to this marvelous, as far as an expression of truth is concerned, passage. There, then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul. And for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Now Saul has been dead for some time. But here they're having a three-year famine. Why? Because of the rebellion of King Saul. What about Manasseh? Second Kings 24 and 3 says it was because of his iniquitous life, prior to his, of course, repentance, 
It is because of that state in his life, that stage of his life, that ultimately Judah went down into Babylonian captivity and had to suffer for 70 miserable years. That being true, then how better much alive as Romans 14, 7 becomes, wherein Paul said, No man liveth to himself, and no man dieth unto himself. And so then others are going to reap what we have sown as well. That's the divine principle of sowing and reaping. Then add to that in the next place, that the Bible also teaches us that concerning the divine principle of sowing and reaping, that we're going to reap longer than we sow. A farmer can sow in one day what it will take him weeks to harvest. What about the twelve spies? Forty days they spied out the land, returned back, and as a majority they brought an evil report, and as a result Israel was destined to spend forty years roaming the desert sand. Reaping far longer than we sow. That seems in time. We reap longer than we sow in time. When a person sows to a flesh, in time, he is going to reap immeasurably. He is going to be robbed of joy and of peace and of hope and of prayer and the blessings of a Christian family. He is going to reap so much in time. But then, if he doesn't repent, he will reap for a non-ending eternity. And thus Matthew 25 and verse 46 says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Take a piece of granite, one of the hardest stones that you better ever know we know anything about. Take a piece of granite, and let it be one mile long, and one mile wide, and one mile thick, it taxes a mind to even envision such. But a picture it, if you will. And then when you've got that massive stone as just described in mind, take a little pretty hummingbird and let him begin to split his wings against it. How long would it take him to split his wings in order to make an invitation one each? Just one each? Why take millenniums and millenniums? But I'm here to say tonight that when that little hummingbird will have split its wings, Flitter the twain in our times against that solid piece of granite, one mile wide, one mile long, and one mile thick. I say enough times to him he has dissolved it into endless oblivion. When that much time will have transpired, I'll not have one less minute, one less minute to stand either basking in glory or burning in hell. I'm here to say to my friends, we're going to reap longer than we sow. But someone says that reflects upon the mercy of God. Why don't it take that long for a man to stand? So why will hell be that long? Well, why don't you reason like that when it comes to the system of justice now? It don't take but three seconds, maybe even half of a second, for a man to take the life of another man. But we don't put him in jail that long. Why we judge the retribution that is appropriate on the premise of what deliberateness accompanied that given crime? We judge it on the basis of what about the nature of the law that is broken? We judge it on the basis of what are the consequences that flow from such? And though it may not take him but a split second to take the life of another, he may linger in prison. He may linger in prison for decades and decades. Surely, surely, then, in the exercise of his justice, 
God has the right thus to arrange. And I'll tell you, friends, over in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, there is a text that when I read, I tremble. I believe it to be one of the most expressive passages to be found anywhere in the Bible describing hell. The Bible says there, the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. That's what it will be. He should be tormented too with fire three and brimstone four in the presence of the holy angels, number five, and it shall be forever and ever six. A six-fold description. But you know, when I read about the fire, that doesn't bother me as much as something else in that text. The brimstone don't bother me as much as something else in that text. What bothers me in that passage says that whatever God punishes, it will be a punishment wherein the wrath of God is poured out without mixture. Whenever God poured out his wrath upon the Antediluvian world, it was mixed with mercy. God said, build an ark and all who will can go in. But I'm here to tell you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, that if it's ours to spend eternity in hell, fire will be bad, brimstone will be bad, and what you will to that prayer what the Bible teaches. But in my judgment, the worst thing about hell is that hell is a place where the wrath of God is poured out and packed without mixture. There is not one microscopic aspect of the mercy of God anywhere at all to be found in hell. And I believe this, that there's not any attribute that is applicable under God that is not infinite. You talk about God's power, it's limitless. You talk about God's knowledge, it's limitless. God's mercy is limitless. What about God's justice? What about God's wrath? It's limitless. And so when I think about hell, what makes it bad? It's the place where God's wrath is poured out without any mixture. Not even one solitary microscopic aspect of the mercy of God will ever be found there. And that simply means let your mind run wild, let your language become bankrupt, trying to describe the wrath of God. And I'm there where it's impossible to comprehend. And there is no end to the wrath of God. It's just going to be poured out on hell. In hell. And that's where men will be forever and ever. Don't tell me that the Bible don't teach the principle of sowing and reaping. And you'll reap far longer than you've ever seen. Hell's bad. Hell's bad. And why will a man choose hell above heaven is beyond my comprehension. I go weak when I read that back. It's time for me to think of hell being a place where the wrath of God is poured out without one aspect of the mercy of God, and it will last forever. The divine principle of sowing and reaping. Reaping is the inevitable consequence of it. We will reap as we have sown. We will reap more than we have sown. Others will reap what we have sown, and we will reap longer than we have sown. Such is the divine principle of sowing and reaping. The tissue of life, of life to be, we weave with colors all our own. And on the fields of destiny, we reap as we have sown. And thank the Lord tonight. We don't have to go to the place we just described. But by his mercy and grace, heaven can be our home forever. That's a wonderful, wonderful thought of relief. And tonight, if you're in need of becoming a baptized, penitent believer, 
If you're here and need to be baptized into Christ, such as the teaching of Galatians 3 and 27, or if you're here and you need to come back home and to be restored because your life has been lived on the wrong side of the ledger, you've been worldly in life or delinquent in your attendance, for example, and you need to come back home and to let the saints who know of your delinquency know of your repentance. Won't this be the night when you will come, come to the Lord, and make everything all right with yourself and with him? We pray that it would be so. We're going to sing the first and last stanzas of him that Brother Smith is a man. And as we sing this great invitation hymn, we pray if you hear it need to come, that you will, and you'll do it even now. As together, we now stand and we sing.